0: Hello, friends of the podcast, and welcome back to this special feature of Inconceivable Media. I'm your host, Cam, and I will continue reading Who Goes There? Chapter 5 Blair came up from the nightmare-haunted depths of sleep abruptly. Conant's face floated vaguely above him. For a moment, it seemed a continuance of the wild horror of the dream. But Conant's face was angry and a little frightened. Blair! Blair, you damned log wake up huh the little biologist rubbed his eyes his bony freckled fingers crooked to a mutilated child fist from surrounding bunks other faces lifted to stare down at them conant straightened up get up and get a lift on your damned animals escaped escaped what chief pilot van wall's bull voice roared out with a volume that shook the walls Down the communication tunnels, other voices yelled suddenly. The dozen inhabitants of Paradise House tumbled in abruptly, Barkley, stocky and bulbous in long woolen underwear, carrying a fire extinguisher. What the hell's the matter? Barkley demanded. Your damn beast got loosed. I fell asleep about 20 minutes ago, and when I woke up, the thing was gone. Hey, Doc, the hell you say those things can't come to life? "'Blair's blast of potential life "'developed a hell of a lot of potential "'and walked out on us!' "'Copper stared blankly. "'It wasn't... "'Earthly!' "'He sighed suddenly. "'I... "'I guess Earthly laws don't apply. "'Well, it applied for leave of absence "'and took it. "'We've got to find it and capture it somehow!' "'Conant swore bitterly, "'his deep-set black eyes sullen and angry.' It's a wonder the hellish creature didn't eat me in my sleep." Blair stared back. His pale eyes suddenly fearstruck. Maybe it did, uh, uh, we'll have to find it. You find it. It's your pet. I've had all I want to do with it. Sitting there for seven hours with a counter clucking every few seconds, and you birds in here singing night music, it's a wonder I got to sleep. I'm going through to the ad building. Commander Gary ducked through the doorway, pulling his belt tight. You won't have to. Van's roar sounded like the Boeing taking off downwind. So it wasn't dead? I didn't carry it off in my arms, I assure you, Conant snapped. Last I saw, that split skull was oozing green goo like a squashed caterpillar. Doc just said our laws don't work. It's unearthly. Well, it's an unearthly monster with an unearthly disposition, judging by the face, wandering around with a split skull and brains oozing out. Norris and MacReady appeared in the doorway, a doorway filling with other shivering men. Has anybody seen it coming over here? Norris asked innocently. About... Four feet tall, three red eyes, brains oozing. Hey, has anybody checked to make sure this isn't a cracked idea of humor? If it is, I think we'll unite in tying Blair's pet around Connet's neck like the ancient mariner's albatross. It's no humor, Connet shivered. Lord, I wish it were. I'd rather wear... He stopped. A wild, weird howl shrieked through the corridors. The men stiffened abruptly and half-turned. I think it's been located, Conant finished. His dark eyes shifted with queer unease. He darted back to his bunk in Paradise House to return almost immediately with a heavy forty-five revolver and an ice axe. He hefted both gently as he started for the corridor down toward Dogtown. It blundered down the wrong corridor and landed among the huskies. Listen! The dogs have broken their chains! The half-terrorized howl of the dog pack changed to a wild hunting melee. The voices of the dogs thundered in the narrow corridors, and through them came a low, rippling snarl of distilled hate. A shrill of pain, a dozen snarling yelps. Connett broke for the door. Close behind him, McCready, then Barkley and Commander Gary came. Other men broke for the ad building and weapons, the sledgehouse. Pomeroy, in charge of Big Magnet's five cows, started down the corridor in the opposite direction. He had a six-foot-handled long tined pitchfork in mind. Barclay slid to a halt as McCready's giant bulk turned abruptly away from the tunnel leading to Dogtown and vanished off to at an angle. Uncertainly, the mechanician wavered a moment, the fire extinguisher in his hands hesitating from one side to the other. Then, he was racing after Connett's broad back. Whatever MacReady had in mind, he could be trusted to make it work. Connett stopped at the bend in the corridor. His breath hissed suddenly through his throat. Great God! The revolver exploded thunderously. Three numbing, palpable waves of sound crashed through the confined corridors. Two more. The revolver dropped to the hard-packed snow of the trail and Barclay saw the ice axe shift into defensive position. Connett's powerful body blocked his vision, but beyond he heard something mewing and, insanely, chuckling. The dogs were quieter. There was a deadly seriousness in their low snarls. Taloned feet scratched at hard-packed snow. Broken chains were clinking and tangling. Connett shifted abruptly, and Barclay could see what lay beyond. For a second he stood frozen. Then his breath went out in a gusty curse. The thing launched itself at Connet. The powerful arms of the man swung the ice axe flat side first at what might have been a hand. It scrunched horribly, and the tattered flesh, ripped by a half-dozen savage huskies, leapt to its feet again. The red eyes blazed with an unearthly hatred, an unearthly, unkillable vitality. Barkley turned the fire extinguisher on it. The blinding, blistering stream of chemical spray confused it, baffled it, together with the savage attacks of the huskies, not for long afraid of anything that did, or could live, held it at bay. McCready wedged men out of his way and drove down the narrow corridor packed with men, unable to reach the scene. There was a sure foreplanned drive to McCready's attack. One of the giant blowtorches used in warming the plane's engines was in his bronzed hands that roared gustily as he turned the corner and opened the valve. The mad mewing hissed louder. The dog scrambled back from the three-foot lance of blue-hot flame. Barr, get a power cable. Run it in somehow. And a handle. We can electrocute this monster if I don't incinerate it. McCready spoke with an authority of planned action. Barkley turned down the long corridor to the power plant, but already before him, Norris and Vanwall were racing down. Barkley found the cable in the electrical cache in the tunnel wall. In a half minute, he was hacking at it, walking back. Van Wall's voice rang out in a warning shout of POWER as the emergency gasoline-powered dynamo thudded into action. Half a dozen other men were down there now. The coal kindling were going into the firebox of the steam power plant. Norris, cursing in a low, deadly monotone, was working with quick, sure fingers on the other end of Barclay's cable, splicing in a contactor in one of the power leads. The dogs had fallen back when Barclay reached the corridor bend, fallen back before a furious monstrosity that glared from baleful red eyes, mewing in trapped hatred. The dogs were a semicircle of red-dipped muzzles with a fringe of glistening white teeth whining with a vicious eagerness that near-matched the fury of the red eyes. MacReady stood confidently alert at the corridor bend, the gustily muttering torch held loose and ready for action in his hands. He stepped aside without moving his eyes from the beast as Barclay came up. There was a slight, tight smile on his lean, bronzed face. Norris's voice called down the corridor, and Barclay stepped forward. The cable was taped to the long handle of a snow shovel, The two conductors split and held 18 inches apart by a scrap of lumber lashed at right angles across the far end of the handle. Bare copper conductors, charged with 220 volts, glinted in the light of pressure lamps. The thing mewed and halted and dodged. MacReady advanced to Barclay's side. The dogs beyond sensed the plan with the almost telepathic intelligence of trained huskies. Their whimpering grew shriller, softer. Their mincing steps carried them nearer. Abruptly, a huge night-black Alaskan leapt onto the trapped thing. It turned, squalling, saber-clawed feet slashing. Barkley leapt forward and jabbed. A weird, shrill scream rose and choked out. The smell of burnt flesh in the corridor intensified. Greasy smoke curled up. The echoing pound of the gas-electric dynamo down the corridor became a slogging thud. The red eyes clouded over in a stiffening, jerking travesty of a face. Arm-like, leg-like members quivered and jerked. The dogs leapt forward, and Barkley yanked back his shovel-handed weapon. The thing on the snow did not move as gleaming teeth ripped it open. Chapter 6 Gary looked about the crowded room. Thirty-two men, some tensed nervously, standing against the wall, some uneasily relaxed, some sitting, most perforce standing, as intimate as sardines. 32, plus the five engaged in sewing up wounded dogs, made 37, the total personnel. Gary started speaking. All right, I guess we're here. Some of you, three or four at most, saw what happened. All of you have seen that thing on the table and can get a general idea. Anyone hasn't? i'll lift his hand strayed to the tarpaulin bulking over the thing on the table there was an acrid odor of singed flesh seeping out of it the men stirred restlessly hasty denials it looks rather as though charnock isn't going to lead any more teams gary went on blair wants to get at this thing and make some more detailed examination We want to know what happened and make sure right now that this is permanently, totally dead. Right? Conant grinned. Anybody that doesn't agree can sit up with it tonight. All right then, Blair. What can you say about it? What was it? Gary turned to the little biologist. I wonder if we ever saw its natural form. Blair looked at the covered mass. It may have been imitating the, being, the beings that built that ship. But I don't think it was. I think that was its true form. Those of us who were up near the bend saw the thing in action. The thing on the table is the result. When it got loose, apparently, it started looking around. Antarctica still frozen as it was ages ago when the creature first saw it and froze. From my observations while it was thawing out, and the bits of tissue I cut and hardened then, I think it was native to a hotter planet than Earth. It couldn't, in its natural form, stand the temperature. There is no life form on Earth that can live in Antarctica during the winter, but the best compromise is the dog. It found the dogs and somehow got near enough to Charnak to get him. The others smelled it, heard it, I don't know. Anyway, they went wild and broke chains and attacked it before it was finished. The thing we found was part charnock, queerly only half dead, part charnock half digested by the jelly-like protoplasm of that creature, and part the remains of the thing we originally found, sort of melted down to the basic protoplasm. When the dogs attacked it, it turned into the best fighting thing it could think of. Some other world beast, apparently. Turned? snapped Carrie. How? Every living thing is made up of jelly, protoplasm, and minute, submicroscopic things called nuclei, which control the bulk, the protoplasm. This thing was just a modification of that same worldwide plan of nature, cells made up of protoplasm, controlled by infinitely tinier nuclei, You physicists might compare it, an individual cell of any living thing, with an atom. The bulk of the atom, the space-filling part, is made up of the electron orbits, but the character of the thing is determined by the atomic nucleus. This isn't wildly beyond what we already know. It's just a modification we haven't seen before. It's as natural, as logical as any other manifestation of life. It obeys exactly the same laws. The cells are made of protoplasm, their character determined by the nucleus. Only in this creature, the cell nuclei can control those cells at will. It digested Charnock, and as it digested, studied every cell of his tissue, and shaped its own cells to imitate them exactly. Parts of it, parts that had time to finish changing, are dog cells, But they don't have dog cell nuclei. Blair lifted a fraction of the tarpaulin, a torn dog's leg with stiff gray fur protruded. That, for instance, isn't dog at all. It's imitation. Some parts I'm certain about. The nucleus was hiding itself, covering up with dog cell imitation nucleus. In time, not even a microscope would have shown the difference. Suppose, asked Norris bitterly, it had had lots of time, then it would have been a dog. The other dogs would have accepted it. We would have accepted it. I don't think anything would have distinguished it, not microscope, nor x-ray, nor any other means. This is a member of a supremely intelligent race, a race that has learned the deepest secrets of biology and turned them to its use. What was it planning to do? Barkley looked at the humped tarpaulin. Blair grinned unpleasantly. The wavering halo of thin hair around his bald pate wavered in the stir of air. Take over the world, I imagine. Take over the world? Just it, all by itself? Conant gasped. Set itself up as a lone dictator? No, Blair shook his head. The scalpel he had been fumbling in his bony fingers dropped. He bent to pick it up, so that his face was hidden as he spoke. It would become the population of the world. Become, populate the world? Does it re- reproduce asexually? Blair shook his head and gulped. It's, it doesn't have to. It weighed 85 pounds. Charnock weighed about 90 It would have become Charnock and had 85 pounds left to become, oh, Jack, for instance, or Chinook. It can imitate anything, that is, become anything. If it had reached the Antarctic Sea, it would have become a seal or maybe two seals. They might have attacked a killer whale and become either killers or a herd of seals or maybe... Or maybe it would have caught an albatross or a squaw gull and flown to South America. Norris cursed softly, and every time it digested something and imitated it, it would have had its original bulk left to start again, Blair finished. Nothing would kill it. It has no natural enemies because it becomes whatever it wants to. If a killer whale attacked, it would become a killer whale. If it was an albatross and an eagle attacked it, it would become an eagle. Or it might become a female eagle. Go back, build a nest, and lay eggs. Are you sure that thing from hell is dead? Dr. Copper asked softly. Yes, thank heaven, the little biologist gasped. After they drove the dogs off, I stood there poking Barr's electrocution thing into it for five minutes. It's dead and cooked. Then we can only give thanks that this is Antarctica, where there is not one single solitary living thing for it to imitate, except these animals in camp. Us, Blair giggled. It can imitate us. Well, dogs can't make 400 miles to the sea. There's no food. There aren't any squawgals to imitate at this season. There aren't any penguins this far inland. There's nothing that can reach the sea from this point, except us. We've got the brains. We can do it. Don't you see? It's got to imitate us. It's got to be one of us. That's the only way it can fly an airplane. Fly a plane for two hours and rule. Be all Earth's inhabitants. A world for the taking if it imitates us. It didn't know yet. It hadn't had a chance to learn. It was rushed, hurried. Look, the thing nearest its own size. Look, I'm Pandora. I opened the box, and the only hope that can come out of it is that nothing can come out. You didn't see me. I did it. I fixed it. I smashed every magneto. Not a plane can fly. Nothing can fly! Blair giggled and lay down on the floor, crying. Chief Pilot Van Wall made a dive for the door. His feet were fading echoes in the corridors as Dr. Copper bent unhurriedly over the little man on the floor. From his office at the end of the room, he brought something and injected a solution into Blair's arm. He might come out of it when he wakes up, he sighed, rising. McCready helped him lift the biologist onto a nearby bunk. It all depends on whether we can convince him that thing is dead. Vanwall ducked into the shack, brushing his heavy blonde beard absently. I didn't think a biologist would do a thing like that up thoroughly. He missed the spares in the second cache. It's all right. I smashed them. Commander Gary nodded. I was wondering about the radio. Dr. Copper snorted. You don't think it can leak out on a radio wave, do you? You'd have five rescue attempts in the next three months if you stop the broadcasts. The thing to do is talk loud and not make a sound. Now, I wonder... McCready looked speculatively at the doctor. It might be like an infectious disease. Everything that drank any of its blood... Copper shook his head, hmm, Blair missed something, imitate it may, but it has, to a certain extent, its own body chemistry, its own metabolism, if it didn't, it would become a dog, and be a dog, and nothing more, it has to be an imitation dog, therefore you can detect it by serum tests, And its chemistry, since it comes from another world, must be so wholly radically different that a few cells, such as gained by drops of blood, would be treated as disease germs by the dog, or human body. Blood? Would one of those imitations bleed? Norris demanded. Surely. Nothing mystic about blood. Muscle is about 90% water. Blood differs only in having a couple percent more water and less connective tissue. They'd bleed all right, Copper assured him. Blair sat up in his bunk suddenly. Connit! Where's Connit? The physicist moved over toward the little biologist. Here I am. What do you want? Are you? giggled Blair. He lapsed back into the bunk, contorted with silent laughter. Connit looked at him blankly. Huh? Am I what? Are you there? Blair burst into gales of laughter. Are you, Connet?" The beast wanted to be a man, not a dog! Chapter 7. Dr. Copper rose wearily from the bunk and washed the hypodermics carefully. The little tinkles it made seemed loud in the packed room, now that Blair's gurgling laughter had finally quieted. Copper looked down toward Gary and shook his head slowly. Hopeless, I'm afraid. I don't think we can ever convince him the thing is dead now. Norris laughed uncertainly. I'm not sure you can convince me. Oh, damn you, Macready. Macready, Commander Gary turned to look from Norris to Macready curiously. The nightmares, Norris explained. He had a theory about the nightmares we had at the secondary station after finding that thing. And that was, Gary looked at Macready levelly. Norris answered for him jerkily, uneasily, that the creature wasn't dead had a sort of enormously slowed existence, an existence that permitted it, nonetheless, to be vaguely aware of the passing of time, of our coming after endless years. I had a dream it could imitate things. Well, Copper grunted, it can. Don't be an ass, Norris snapped. That's not what's bothering me. In the dream, it could read minds, read thoughts and ideas and mannerisms. What's so bad about that? It seems to be worrying you more than the thought of the joy we're going to have with a madman in an Antarctic camp. Copper nodded toward Blair's sleeping form. MacReady shook his great head slowly. You know that Conant is Conant, because he not merely looks like Conant, which we're beginning to believe that beast might be able to do, but he thinks like Conant talks like Connet, moves himself around as Connet does. That takes more than merely a body that looks like him, that takes Connet's own mind and thoughts and mannerisms. Therefore, though you know that the thing might make itself look like Connet, you aren't much bothered because you know it has a mind from another world, a totally unhuman mind that couldn't possibly react and think and talk like a man we know, and do it so well as to fool us for a moment. The idea of the creature imitating one of us is fascinating, but unreal because it is too completely unhuman to deceive us. It doesn't have a human mind. As I said before, Norris repeated, looking steadily at MacReady, you can say that damnedest things at the damnedest times. Will you be so good as to finish that thought one way or the other? Kinner, the scar-faced expedition cook, had been standing near Connet. Suddenly, he moved down the length of the crowded room toward his familiar galley. He shook the ashes from the galley stove noisily. It would do it no good, said Dr. Copper, softly as though thinking out loud to merely look like something it was trying to imitate. It would have to understand its feelings, its reaction. It is unhuman. It has powers of imitation beyond any conception of man. A good actor, by training himself, can imitate another man, another man's mannerisms, well enough to fool most people. Of course, no actor could imitate so perfectly as to deceive men who had been living with the imitated one in the complete lack of privacy of an unantarctic camp. That would take a superhuman skill. Oh, you've got the bug too, Norris cursed softly. Conant, standing alone at one end of the room, looked about him wildly, his face white A gentle eddying of the men had crowded them slowly down toward the other end of the room, so that he stood quite alone. My God, will you two, Jeremiah, shut up! Conant's voice shook. What am I? Some kind of a microscopic specimen you're dissecting? Some unpleasant worm you're discussing in the third person? McCready looked up at him. His slowly twisting hand stopped for a moment. Having a lovely time. Wish you were here. Signed, everybody. <laughs> Conant, if you think we're having a hell of a time, just move over on the other end for a while. You've got one thing we haven't. You know what the answer is. I'll tell you this. Right now, you're the most feared and respected man in Big Magnet. <sighs> Lord, I wish you could see your eyes, Conant gasped. Stop staring, will you? What the hell are you going to do have you any suggestions dr copper commander gary asked steadily the present situation is impossible oh is it Connett snapped come over here and look at that crowd by heaven they look exactly like that gang of huskies around the corridor bend benning will you stop hefting that damned ice axe the coppery blade rang on the floor as the aviation mechanic nervously dropped it He bent over and picked it up instantly, hefting it slowly, turning it in his hands, his brown eyes moving jerkily about the room. Copper sat down on the bunk beside Blair. The wood creaked noisily in the room. Far down a corridor, a dog yelped in pain, and the dog driver's tense voices floated softly back. Microscopic examination, said the doctor thoughtfully. Would be useless, as Blair pointed out. Considerable time has passed, however, serum tests would be definitive. Serum tests? What do you mean, exactly? Commander Gary asked. If I had a rabbit that had been injected with human blood, a poison to rabbits, of course, as is the blood of any animal save that of another rabbit, and the injections continued in increasing doses for some time, the rabbit would be human immune. If a small quantity of, bl- of its blood were drawn off, allowed to separate in a test tube, and to the clear serum a bit of human blood were added, there would be a visible reaction proving the blood was human. If cow or dog blood were added, or any protein material other than that one thing, human blood, no reaction would take place. That would prove definitely. Can you suggest where I might catch a rabbit for you, Doc? Norris asked. That is nearer than Australia. We don't want to waste time going that far. I know there aren't any rabbits in Antarctica, Copper nodded, but that is simply the usual animal. Any animal except man will do, a dog for instance, but it will take several days, and due to the greater size of the animal, considerable blood. Two of us will have to contribute. Would I do? Gary asked. That will make two, Copper nodded. I'll get to work on it right away. What about Connett in the meantime, Kinner demanded. I'm going out that door and head off for the Rossi before I cook for him he may be human copper started conant burst out in a flood of curses. human maybe human you damn sawbones what in the hell do you think i am a monster copper snapped sharply now shut up and listen conant's face drained of color and he sat down heavily as the indictment was put in words until we know you know as well as we do that we have reason to question the fact, and only you know how that question is to be answered. We may reasonably be expected to lock you up. If you are unhuman, you're a lot more dangerous than poor Blair there, and I'm going to see that he's locked up thoroughly. I expect that his next stage will be a violent desire to kill you, all of the dogs, and probably all of us. When he wakes, he will be convinced we're all unhuman and nothing on the planet will ever change his conviction it would be kinder to let him die but we can't do that of course he's going in one shack and you can stay in cosmos house with your cosmic ray apparatus which is about what you do anyway i've got to fix up a couple of dogs conant nodded bitterly i'm human hurry that test your eyes, Lord, I wish you could see your eyes staring. Commander Gary watched anxiously as Clark, the dog handler, held the big brown Alaskan husky while Copper began the injection treatment. The dog was not anxious to cooperate. The needle was painful, and already he'd experienced considerable needlework that morning. Five stitches held closed a slash that ran from his shoulder across the ribs halfway down his body one long fang was broken off short. The missing part was to be found half-buried in the shoulder bone of the monstrous thing on the table in the ad building. How long will that take? Gary asked, pressing his arm gently. It was sore from the prick of the needle Dr. Copper had used to withdraw blood. Copper shrugged. I don't know. To be frank, I know the general method. I've used it on rabbits. But... "'I haven't experimented with dogs. They're big, clumsy animals to work with. Naturally, rabbits are preferable and serve ordinarily. In civilized places, you can buy a stock of human-immune rabbits from suppliers, and not many investigators take the trouble to prepare their own.' "'What do they want with them back there?' Clark asked. "'Criminology is one large field.' A says he didn't murder B, but that the blood on his shirt came from killing a chicken. The state makes a test, then it's up to A to explain how it is the blood reacts on human immune rabbits, but not on chicken immunes. What are we going to do with Blair in the meantime? Gary asked wearily. It's alright to let him sleep where he is for a while, but when he wakes up, Barkley and Benning are fitting some bolts on the door of Cosmo's house, Copper replied grimly. Conant's acting like a gentleman. I think perhaps the way the other men look at him makes him rather want privacy. Lord knows, heretofore we've all of us individually prayed for a little privacy. Clark laughed bitterly. Not anymore, thank you. The more, the merrier. Blair, Copper went on, We'll also have to have privacy and locks. He's going to have a pretty definite plan in mind when he wakes up. Ever heard the old story of how to stop hoof-and-mouth disease in cattle? If there isn't any hoof-and-mouth disease, there won't be any hoof-and-mouth disease, Copper explained. You get rid of it by killing every animal that exhibits it and every animal that's been near the diseased animal. Blair's a biologist and knows that story. He's afraid of this thing we loosed. The answer is probably pretty clear in his mind now. Kill everybody and everything in this camp before a squaw gall or a wandering albatross coming in with the spring chances out this way and catches the disease. Clark's lips curled in a twisted grin. Sounds logical to me. If things get too bad, <laughs> maybe we'd better let Blair get loose. It would save us committing suicide. We might also make something of a vow that if things get bad, we see that that does happen. Copper laughed softly. The last man alive in Big Magnet wouldn't be a man, he pointed out. Somebody's got to kill those creatures that don't desire to kill themselves, you know? We don't have enough thermite to do it all at once, and the decanite explosive wouldn't help much. I have an idea that even small pieces of one of those things would be self-sufficient. If, said Gary thoughtfully, they can modify their protoplasm at will, won't they simply modify themselves to birds and fly away? They can read all about birds and imitate their structure without even meeting them, or imitate perhaps birds of their home planet. Copper shook his head and helped Clark to free the dog. Man studied birds for centuries, trying to learn how to make a machine to fly like them. He never did do the trick. His final success came when he broke away entirely and tried new methods. Knowing the general idea, and knowing the detailed structure of wing and bone and nerve tissue is something far, far different. And as for other world birds, perhaps, in fact, very probably, the atmospheric conditions here are so vastly different that their birds couldn't fly. Perhaps even the being came from a planet like Mars, with such a thin atmosphere that there were no birds. Barkley came into the building, trailing a length of airplane control cable. It's finished, Doc. Cosmo House can't be opened from the inside. Now where do we put Blair? Copper looked toward Gary. There wasn't any biology building. I don't know where we can isolate him. How about East Cash, Gary said after a moment's thought. Will Blair be able to look after himself or need attention? He'll be capable enough. We'll be the ones to watch out, Copper assured him grimly. Take a stove, a couple bags of coal, necessary supplies, and a few tools to fix it up. Nobody's been out there since last fall, have they? Gary shook his head. If he gets noisy, I thought that might be a good idea. Barkley hefted the tools he was carrying and looked up at Gary. If the muttering he's doing now is any sign, he's going to sing away the night hours. And we won't like his song. What's he saying? Copper asked. Barkley shook his head. I didn't care to listen much. You can if you want to, but I gathered that the blasted idiot had all the dreams McCready had and a few more. He slept beside the thing when he stopped on the trail coming in from Secondary Magnet, remember? He dreamt the thing was alive and dreamt more details and damn his soul knew it wasn't all dream or had reason to. He knew it had telepathic powers that were stirring vaguely and that could not only read minds but project thoughts. They weren't dreams, you see. They were stray thoughts that thing was broadcasting, the way Blair's broadcasting his thoughts now, a sort of telepathic muttering in its sleep. That's why he knew so much about its powers. I guess you and I, Doc, weren't so sensitive if you want to believe in telepathy. I have to side. Dr. Ryan of Duke University has shown that it exists, shown that some are much more sensitive than others. Well, if you want to learn a lot of details, go listen in on Blair's broadcast. He's driven most of the boys out of the ad building. Kinner's rattling pans like coal going down a chute. When he can't rattle a pan, he shakes ashes. By the way, Commander, what are we going to do this spring now that the planes are out of it? Gary sighed. I'm afraid our expedition is going to be a loss. We cannot divide our strength now. It won't be a loss. If we continue to live and come out of this, Copper promised him, the find we've made, if we can get it under control, is important enough. The cosmic ray data, magnetic work, and atmospheric work won't be greatly hindered. Gary laughed mirthlessly. I was just thinking of the radio broadcasts, telling half the world about the wonderful results of our exploration flights, trying to fool men like Bird and Ellsworth back home there that we're doing something. Copper nodded gravely. They'll know something's wrong, but men like that have judgment enough to know we wouldn't do tricks without some sort of reason, and will wait for our return to judge us. I think it comes to this. Men who know enough to recognize our deception will wait for our return. Men who haven't discretion and faith enough to wait will not have the experience to detect any fraud. We know enough of the conditions here to put through a good bluff. Mm, Just so they don't send rescue expeditions, Gary prayed, when, if we're ever ready to come out... We'll have to send word to Captain Forsythe to bring a stock of magnetos with him when he comes down. But never mind that. You mean, if we don't come out? asked Barkley. I was wondering if a nice running account of an eruption or an earthquake via radio with a swell wind-up by using a stick of decanite under the microphone would help. Nothing, of course, will entirely keep people out. One of those swell, melodramatic Last Man Alive scenes might make him go easy, though. Gary smiled with genuine humor. Is everybody in camp trying to figure that out, too? Copper laughed. What do you think, Gary? We're confident we can win out, but not too easy about it, I guess. Clark grinned up from the dog he was petting into calmness. Confident, did you say, Doc? Chapter 8 Blair moved restlessly around the small shack. His eyes jerked and quivered in vague, fleeting glances at the four men with him. Barkley, six feet tall and weighing over 190 pounds, McCready, a bronze giant of a man, Dr. Copper, short, squatly powerful, and Benning, five feet ten of wiry strength. Blair was huddled up against the far wall of the East Cash Cabin, his gear piled in the middle of the floor beside the heating stove, forming an island between him and the four men. His bony hands clenched and fluttered, terrified. His pale eyes wavered uneasily as his bald, freckled head darted about in bird-like motion. I don't want anybody coming here. I'll cook my own food, he snapped nervously. Kinner may be human now, but I don't believe it. I'm going to get out of here, but I'm not going to eat any food you send me. I want cans. Sealed cans. Okay, Blair will bring them tonight, Barkley promised. You've got coal and the fire started. I'll make a list. Barkley started forward. Blair instantly scurried to the farthest corner. Get out! Keep away from me, you monster! The little biologist shrieked and tried to claw his way through the wall of the shack. Keep away from me! Keep away! I won't be absorbed! I won't be... Barclay relaxed and moved back. Dr. Copper shook his head. Leave him alone, Barr. It's easier for him to fix the thing himself. We'll have to fix the door, I think. The four men let themselves out. Efficiently, Benning and Barclay fell to work. There were no locks in Antarctica. There wasn't enough privacy to make them needed. But powerful screws had been driven in each side of the door frame and the spare aviation control cable, immensely strong woven steel wire, was rapidly caught between them and drawn taut. Barclay went to work with a drill and a keyhole saw. Presently, he had a trap cut in the door through which goods could be passed without unlashing the entrance. Three powerful hinges from a stock crate, two hasps, and a pair of three-inch cotter pins made it proof against opening from the other side. Blair moved about restlessly inside. He was dragging something over to the door with panting gasps and muttering frantic curses. Barkley opened the hatch and glanced in, Dr. Copper peering over his shoulder. Blair had moved the heavy bunk against the door. It could not be opened without his cooperation now. Don't know, but what the poor man's fight at that, MacReady sighed. If he gets loose, it is his avowed intention to kill each and all of us as quickly as possible, which is something we don't agree with, but we've something on our side of that door that is worse than a homicidal maniac. If one or the other has to get loose, I think I'll come up and undo those lashings here. (laughs) Barkley grinned. You let me know, and I'll show you how to get these off fast. Let's go back. The sun was painting the northern horizon in multicolored rainbows still, though it was two hours below the horizon. The field of drift swept off to the north, sparkling under its flaming colors in a million reflected glories. Low mounds of rounded white on the northern horizon showed the magnet range was barely awash above the sweeping drift. Little eddies of wind-lifted snow swirled away from their skies as they set out toward the main encampment two miles away. The spidery finger of the broadcast radiator lifted a gaunt black needle against the white of the Antarctic continent. The snow under their skies was like fine sand, hard and gritty. Spring, said Benning bitterly, is come. Ain't we got fun? I've been looking forward to getting away from this blasted hole in the ice. "'I wouldn't try it now if I were you,' Barkley grunted. "'Guys that set out from here in the next few days are going to be marvelously unpopular.' "'How is your dog getting along, Dr. Copper?' McCready asked. "'Any results yet?' "'In thirty hours?' "'I wish there were. "'I gave him an injection of my blood today, but I imagine another five days will be needed.' I don't know certainly enough to stop sooner. I've been wondering, if Conant were changed, would he have warned us so soon after the animal escaped? Wouldn't he have waited long enough for it to have a real chance to fix itself? Unless we woke it up naturally? MacReady asked slowly. The thing is selfish. You didn't think it looked as though it were possessed of a store of the higher justices, did you? Dr. Copper pointed out. Every part of it is all of it. Every part of it is all for itself, I imagine. If Conant were changed, to save his skin, he'd have to. But Conant's feelings aren't changed. They're imitated perfectly. Or they're his own. Naturally, the imitation imitating perfectly Conant's feelings would do exactly what Conant would do. Say, couldn't Norris or Van give Conant some kind of a test? If the thing is brighter than men, it might know more physics than Connett should, and they'd catch it out, Barclay suggested. Copper shook his head wearily. Not if it reads minds. You can't plan a trap for it. Van suggested that last night. He hoped it would answer some of the questions of physics he'd like to know answers to. This expedition of four ideas is going to make life happy. Benning looked at his companions each of us with an eye on the others to make sure he doesn't do something peculiar. Man, aren't we going to be a trusting bunch, each man eyeing his neighbors with the grandest exhibition of faith and trust? I'm beginning to know what Conant meant by, I wish you could see your eyes. Every now and then, we all have it, I guess. One of you looks around with a sort of, I wonder if the other three are, look. Incidentally, I'm not accepting myself. So... As far as we know, the animal is dead, with a slight question as to Connet. No other is suspected. McCready stated slowly. The always four order is merely a precautionary measure. I'm waiting for Gary to make it four in a bunk. Barclay sighed. I thought I didn't have any privacy before, but since that order, none watched more tensely than Connet. A little sterile glass test tube, half filled with straw colored fluid. One, two, three, four, five drops of the clear solution Dr. Copper had prepared from the drops of blood from Connett's arm. The tube was shaken carefully, then set in a beaker of clear, warm water. The thermometer read blood heat, a little thermostat clicked noisily, and the electric hot plate began to glow as the lights flickered slightly. Then, Little white flecks of precipitation were forming, snowing down in the clear straw-colored fluid. Lord, said Connett. He dropped heavily into a bunk, crying like a baby. Six days, Connett sobbed. Six days in there, wondering if that damn test would lie. Gary moved over silently and slipped his arm across the physicist's back. It couldn't die, Dr. Copper said. The dog was human immune and the serum reacted. "'He's all right?' Norris gasped. "'Then the animal is dead. Dead forever?' "'He is human,' Copper spoke definitely, "'and the animal is dead.' "'Kinner burst out laughing, laughing hysterically. McCready turned toward him and slapped his face "'with a methodical one-two-one-two action. "'The cook laughed, gulped, cried a moment, "'and sat up, rubbing his cheeks.' mumbling his thanks vaguely, "'I was scared. Lord, I was scared!' Norris laughed bitterly, "'You think we weren't, you ape? You think maybe Conant wasn't?' The ad building stirred with a sudden rejuvenation. Voices laughed, the men clustering around Conant spoke with unnecessarily loud voices, jittery, nervous voices relievedly friendly again. Somebody called out a suggestion, and a dozen started for their skis. Blair! Blair might recover! Dr. Copper fussed with his test tubes in nervous relief, trying solutions. The party of relief for Blair's shack started out the door, skis clapping noisily. Down the corridor, the dogs set up a quick, yelping howl as the air of excited relief reached them. Dr. Copper fussed with his tubes. MacReady noticed him first sitting on the edge of the bunk with two precipitant-whitened test tubes of straw-colored fluid, his face whiter than the stuff in the tubes, silent tears slipping down from horror-widened eyes. McCready felt a cold knife of fear pierce through his heart and freeze in his breast. Dr. Copper looked up. Gary! he called hoarsely. Gary, for God's sake, come here! Commander Gary walked toward him sharply. Silence clapped down on the ad building. Conant looked up, rose stiffly from his seat. Gary, tissue from the monster precipitates too. It proves nothing, nothing. But, but the dog was monster immune too. That one of the two contributing blood, one of us too. You and I, Gary, one of us is a monster. And that's where I'll leave you for this week. Tune in next time where we finish Who Goes There?